This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. And I think this is really a moment for the North American church to learn from our global brothers and sisters that are perhaps more accustomed to less certainty um, and and not surprised perhaps in the same way by the difficulty or challenge or feeling let down uh, by certain, wh- whether it's government or church or whatever, um, and go find those individuals of hope and ask them, what is it that has sustained your service? This is a podcast about two things, helping those with urgent needs in front of us today and improving the road so others can walk it safely in the future. Welcome to The Better Samaritan, where we're learning how to do good better whether in everyday interactions or complex humanitarian challenges, and we're grateful to do that with you. I'm Kent Annan, co-director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College. I'm joined by my colleague, Jamie Ayton, and our producer is Laura Finch. And today we're talking with Peter Greer and Chris Horst. Both Peter and Chris work at Hope International, where Peter is the president and CEO, and Chris is the chief advancement officer. Um, They have recently uh, published a new book and called The Gift of Disillusionment, Enduring Hope for Leaders After Idealism Fades. Peter and Chris, welcome. Good to be with you. Thanks for having us. Great to be with you today. So I've appreciated a lot of your books. Uh, We use some of your books in our master's program here, Um, but I have to confess, I feel like you might have missed the mark with this one because I don't know anyone who feels disillusioned right now as they look out (laughs) at the world and everything that is happening. Um, of course, not true. I, I, I so appreciate that you stepped into this as so many of us are feeling, um, feel disillusionment at these different moments as we look at hard things happening in the world. So just want to start jumping right into that. Could you share, maybe starting with you, Peter, what is, in a summary, what is this gift of disillusionment and in what way could this possibly be good when we're feeling uh, disillusioned as we look around us? Yeah, thanks, Ken. Uh, we started working on this in 2019. Little did we know all that was about to happen in the world and in the places where we serve. And, you know, Hope International uh, began in Ukraine. Uh, we are active in Haiti. Um, and every single country where we operate has been through a very, very difficult time. Mm-hmm. And uh, this book actually became a source of hope because we really started with a question. We started a question of what is it that sustains leaders who last even when there are incredibly challenging circumstances? And so we had the opportunity to pick up the phone or travel and spend time with these incredible leaders from around the world and ask a question that we've never really asked overtly before, but what is it that sustains your service and what can we learn from them? And so this process of writing with Chris, this process of listening to individuals and uh, every single one of them started with an element of idealism. But idealism does not last in the type of work that we do. Inevitably, there are challenges, there are are internal and external factors that really can cause us to feel like our hope is running thin. And yet, again, the gift of this project was listening to leaders that had sustained service, had overcome incredible challenges, and in many ways had a different definition of hope that really was enough to hold them even when the circumstances became incredibly difficult. 
Well, and Chris, you know, Peter was alluding to some of the interviews that you all have done. And that was one of the things that I really appreciated was how you all weave your own experiences in, as well as drawing from the prophet Jeremiah and scripture, but also that you were learning from other leaders. And you know, that's one of the things I've really appreciated about just following both of you and the work that you do of constantly learning. So what were some of those takeaways that maybe stood out to you the most from those interviews that you conducted? Well, it seemed uh, pretty quickly uh, that we were stumbling into this just real well of wisdom as we got to know leaders from Zimbabwe and Haiti and India and all throughout the world who kept pointing us back to the Old Testament prophets. And one of the things that was not a part of our original design or plan in writing a book on hope was having a book that prominently featured the prophet Isaiah or prophet Jeremiah throughout it. Uh, but as we got to know these leaders, they kept referring to Jeremiah, kept going back to him and referencing the encouragement they got from Jeremiah. And it's a curious uh, person. Uh, Jeremiah, he really didn't have anything turn out in his life the way that he hoped. Uh, he lived a life that was, a, by very definition, one that was defined by suffering. He was ridiculed, mocked, uh, thrown into the pit to die. He was betrayed by those he cared about. And he presided over one of the darkest seasons of Israel's history, seeing this promised land, the, the temple, the, the walls around the city that they loved uh, fall, around, fall down around him. And yet Jeremiah was the person that these leaders that we talked to found encouragement in. And I think the reason that Jeremiah was someone that they leaned into and, and a reason that we featured him in the book and we found ourselves really captivated by his teaching and story is uh, that Jeremiah is someone that even through all of that, he exuded incredible hope. And I think there's something deeply comforting about seeing uh, those in the faith who have navigated incredible challenges and heartache and uh, expectations that were not met and seeing the ways that they they anchored themselves into God. And as we've all experienced over the last few years, things haven't gone according to plan for, for many of us. Uh, the world has gotten a lot more um sad and challenging. Our work has become more frustrating. Uh, we've seen so much loss of life and we've experienced the pain of relationships that have been frayed. And yet we also in this process realize how potentially we're anchoring our hope in the wrong things, in the certainty that we desire to have and the predictability that we're accustomed to in the comforts of, of our lives, at least here in the U.S., and so the last few years have been in many ways an awakening to the places that we've misplaced our hope and misplaced our confidence. And that's really where we uh, land with this idea of the gift of disillusionment. Barbara Brown Taylor talks about uh, disillusionment, the word that when we take it apart, we realize it's it's really the loss of an illusion. It's it's the loss of a lie that we have believed. And so that's really the, the central premise of the book is that, um, yeah, disillusionment can be a gift as it gives us an opportunity to examine where we're anchoring our hope. Peter, what's been a moment in your life when you've uh, you were disillusioned like what's can you describe you know even describe the feeling or a memory of where you were what prompted it what's as we dive into this and think of how we identify with what you've been writing about we'd love to hear hear about a, a time when you experienced this in your own life yeah you know there certainly are moments in the professional career and it has felt like there have been those moments when idealism was long gone in the work. I remember uh, one situation with the board that was really challenging, just trying to navigate and feeling like we were not on the same page. But 
the one story that uh, I include in the book, the personal story that I include in the book is a story when our family was involved in foster care. And in many ways, it was this really clear call. Um, you know, my professional work has had me in places of poverty around the world. And yet uh, my wife and I were at a presentation and heard the number of kids that were waiting for homes in our local community in Pennsylvania. And it was clear as we were walking out of that uh, presentation, was walking out of that church, uh, we had room um, and it changed the conversation from why should we do this to why shouldn't we do this? If there are kids that need a home and we have space, I mean, let's do this. And so um, we had 12 uh, kids that have lived with us for various amounts of time. And it has been these beautiful moments. It has been incredible breakthrough. And in many ways, we've seen the best of uh, foster care when it works well and children being reunited and families coming back together and getting help. Um, and uh, it has led to the single most difficult uh, moment in my life. Um, and without going into all the details, just really felt like I was, the world was falling apart. Um, and uh, yeah, pain um, and and uh, just by far the, the most difficult time uh, for myself and seeing the people that I love being really wounded in emergency room visits and mm -hmm. police and uh, courts and, and just a really, really challenging time. And at the end of that, like my, my, my heart at the end of that was, this is too difficult. The system is too broken. There's really nothing we can do to help. Let's just uh, stop, stop. Um, and um, it was in that moment that I met some others that had been involved in, in foster care for a long period of time. And I had a lunch with an individual named Anne, and she had been doing foster care her whole life. And she had a similar series of stories, not just one incident, but she had a series mm -hmm. of incidents of equally as difficult or even more difficult times. And this question again, how do you keep going, Anne? Mm -hmm. um, and in Anne's situation, she had over 100 kids uh, throughout her life. She was in her 60s. And, and, and the question of how do you keep going? And when idealism ends, when you feel the discouragement and disillusionment, um, how do you not give in to cynicism? How do you not give up hope? How do you keep on going? And so I think that moment, just in my family, it wasn't like this external service, mm -hmm. but again, it was just watching um, the challenge of this, watching the impact of this, and then uh, being able to learn from someone that had a gritty um, and 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 deeper source of hope. And really, that was the that was the fun of writing this book is to really go and try and understand what is it that sustains that level of gritty um, a service for the long term. And that, uh, that became a gift and our family got back involved. And uh, there's another chapter to that story uh, that I am so thankful for. But um, I, I believe, yeah, that, that was the moment to me that I felt the full force of the siren's call to mm -hmm. cynicism and uh, to, to giving up. I love in this book, you just said, thanks for sharing that, Peter. And as Jamie mentioned before, I was just rem reminded of this and all four of us have, have worked in Haiti some, and I used to, because working in Haiti and headlines that come out, I would sometimes be, uh, you know, traveling or talking with people here in the U.S. About, and, and they'd see another negative headline, say, oh, how do you sustain hope? How do you keep going in the work? And sort of my standard answer but it was, was true was, well, the, the people I'm around 
who whose circumstances are so much harder than mine aren't giving up hope. So how can I? Um, and what you know, your answer is more nuanced in this book, and I learned from it a lot. But what I, I really like, and you're echoing there, is how much um, community has to do with hope and being engaged with each other, and how we we can can really help each other towards hope, like that conversation you had with Anne um, and others. So. Uh, I, I'll let Jamie ask the next question, but I was just re- reflecting already on these first couple questions and wanted to underline for myself, and I appreciate that in the book, that these conversations with others, experiences with others are such an important part of, of being able to sustain hope through hard circumstances. Yeah, and you know, as we talk about hope, I, I actually just kind of wanted to pause for a moment and Chris to invite you to define in your own words, like what what do you and... Uh, Peter mean by hope? How would you put this in your own words and share with others? Well, this is, this is where Jeremiah 17 became a really helpful. um, It's, you know, it's about four verses in the middle of the book uh, that walks through the individual that places their trust within themselves and the individual that places their trust in God. And the difference, I think, for a person of true Christian hope is that they they know that the the seasons, the, the dry seasons, the famines are going to come. Um, they understand that there are going to be seasons that are prosperous and fruitful, uh, but they recognize that the circumstances are not what defines their hope. And so their their hope is anchored in something beyond their current reality. And so, yeah, like you talked about in Haiti, Kent, um, you can look to, to colleagues uh, that are living through and navigating um, incredible hardships and finding themselves not giving up. Or you can look to scripture and see people like Jeremiah who are doing the same. But ultimately, I'd say true hope is anchoring our, um, yeah, it's anchoring our whole lives around the confidence that our circumstances don't define who God is and that God is a good God and that God, in the end, uh, all things will be made new. Every tear will be dried. And, and so we get glimpses of that today. Uh, but Jesus also promises that in this world we'll experience trouble. It's not his most popular promise. It's not one that shows up in a lot of Instagram posts, but it's <laughs> what he promises to us. So uh, we know that, that, that God is going to sustain us, uh, even through really difficult and disillusioning times. But I really appreciate that response because as I hear you defining it, it just makes me think of kind of like a small H hope versus capital H hope of mm-hmm. really placing that hope in God. And then others, other, other people can, can be demonstrating and living that out. So we're not necessarily finding hope in, in others, but they're pointing us to this more enduring hope that you both write about. I'll mix this up. Otherwise, I realize I'll, I'll end up just interviewing Peter and, and um Jamie will just interview Chris. So Chris, to switch it up, you you do a lot of advancement work for uh, for Hope. You're working with people who come in as idealists, whether you know they're partners who are donors or with um, with a staff member who comes in. How do you, as a leader, help sh- kind of shepherd someone through this process of the the reason they often to start working with you? The reason they would come to our master's program is this you know, beautiful idealism born of their faith and the possibilities of change. Uh, you know, how do you, as a leader, walk with someone um, to help them through this process to, to more enduring hope, um, you know, which they may or may not need, but if the people who do, how do you walk with them through that, which might include disillusionment along the way? 
Well, I think the thing that we don't do is when they show up, uh, try and pierce their hope. Uh, and actually right now, you know, we <laughs> just want them for orientation, <laughs> right? Like get ready for the real world. Uh, it's coming. Uh, we, we just welcomed about 20 interns and fellows to the Hope team a few weeks ago, and goodness, do we need their idealism. Uh, so we want to actually celebrate and encourage that. And there's something so deeply encouraging about meeting with our new team members, whether they're staff or interns, who are just amazed at Hope's work. And they kind of see Hope with a fresh perspective. And I, I had these conversations at our leadership summit just recently, where new colleagues are just blown away by the power of what God's doing through Hope International all around the world. And it's right to experience that because it's true that there is so much that is beautiful about what's happening within this organization and the ways God's at work in the world. There's so much for us to be full of hope about. Uh, and yet there, there also are challenges. Fundraising is hard. Managing a team is hard. We are all a mess. Uh, working with boards is difficult. It's tough to prove impact. Like all these things that those of us who've been in this kind of work for a long time have experienced, but we want to allow that idealism to renew us and not to stifle it. So that's one of the things, even in our staff meetings, when we have new employees join, one of the questions we ask in our new staff member interviews is we say, all right, you've been at Hope now for a few weeks or maybe a month or two. What is it that you appreciate about Hope and Hope's culture? And I think it's a chance for some of us that are maybe stuck in the kind of the quagmire of policy and challenges around, you know, staffing. And we look at our inboxes and we've got these thorny issues that we're working through uh, for us to just sort of see this work with a fresh lens. So want to cultivate it. And then we want to be transparent and honest wherever possible about the shortcomings of the work that we do and not try and allow that idealism to be the definition of, of what we're saying about hope, because we've seen the hard stuff. And we know that, you know, lending money to people living in extreme poverty around the world or equipping churches to set up savings groups and, uh, you know, the places where hope works, like it is messy and difficult and complicated. And so we want to be really transparent and honest about that to ensure that that idealism is not um, like blind optimism, but it's idealism that's grounded in the truth. And, and so it's, it's a delicate balance, I think, uh, but it's important, I think, just at the outset to really encourage and welcome that idealism and, and to not, yeah, not stifle it. <laughs> that's great. And, and Peter, what would you say then to the person who is starting, you know, they've been in that idealism phase and maybe something in their ministry or their volunteerism right now has occurred and they're really starting to feel that disillusionment for the first time starting to kind of kick in and wondering like, why am I even doing this? You know, is there, does my doing this do any good at all? What is it you would say to that person right now? That's interesting that uh, I've seen three surveys that have come out after the book came out, but three that really uh, highlighted that those questions or that feeling are really becoming common. And you guys, I know you've seen them too, but the Barna research and the number, the percent of pastors, um, it's uh, 44% of those that are newer in their career are feeling extremely disillusioned and looking or daydreaming about other jobs. Uh, same thing, we're finding that in healthcare. Nurses, almost 50% are thinking about how do I get out? Um, and same thing for teachers. Uh, almost 50% of them as well are thinking about leaving their school or their profession. So we are living in a time when a lot of people are feeling that, just the cumulative toll of the last several years and so I would just say in those moments, um, the worst thing to do is to doom scroll and look yeah. at all of the challenges that fuel 
all of those uh, feelings that you're having and uh, those stories of more challenge, more challenge, more challenge. I don't think that that is ultimately healthy. Um, and I think that really was one of the, the, the great parts of writing this is we intentionally kind of silenced uh, those feeds and said, let's find the stories that are not being told. Let's find those stories of the individuals that have that, as Eugene Peterson writes, that long-term obedience in the same direction, and let's go learn from them. So maybe that's the piece of advice um, is to say, uh, stop the doom scrolling um, and go find those individuals that have been able to hold on to that informed optimism, that hope uh, despite circumstances, those individuals that still embody a spirit of, of service um, and not cynicism in the work that they're doing. Go find those individuals and start asking questions about what is it? What were those moments when they feel felt discouraged and, and how did they uh, overcome it? And I think this is really a moment for the North American church to learn from our global brothers and sisters that are perhaps more accustomed, as Chris was saying, to less certainty um, and and not surprised perhaps in the same way by the difficulty or challenge or feeling let down uh, by certain, wh whether it's government or church or whatever, um, and go find those individuals of hope and ask them, what is it that has sustained your service? And in many ways, that's what we were doing with this book. We wanted to find those individuals. We wanted to elevate those stories and hopefully displace just a few of the stories of bad news of, <laughs> of, of all of these challenges and give individuals a welcome respite of individuals that, yes, have faced the same level of challenge, but yet have found a way to hold on to hope. That's great. I, and I think the book works really well like this. Chris, can you tell uh, one of the stories, like since you finished writing the book and it takes a while before it comes out, but what, can you tell us one of the stories about one of the people who has come to mind for you since writing the book, um, you know, when you're feeling discouraged or disillusioned or, you know, oh, can I press on? This is feeling heavy. Do you mind telling us one of the stories that has been especially meaningfully to you? Sure. Yeah. One of the individuals I got to meet through this process was uh, an individual named Marek Kaharski from Poland, and he leads a seminary there. And, and one of the reasons that his story really um, surprised me and was, I, I think, really encouraging when he shared it was, you know, he's living in a place in Poland where there is a decreasing, rapidly decreasing, vibrant Christian church. And, and he's watched even as he navigated his own coming to faith as a teenager amid like a lot of challenges in his own life. Uh, but it's not like the country itself is experiencing a rich, vibrant growth of faith throughout his you know community. And, and yet, like Merrick was someone who has just been faithfully following God's call to, to minister the gospel in his community and. Uh, he ended up becoming a pastor of a church and then going to seminary and then teaching at the seminary, now leading the seminary. And through all of that, you know, got married, had several kids and walked through some incredibly painful situations at home. Uh, so he was showing up at work each day, leading a seminary in a quote unquote post-Christian environment, uh, a small seminary, not, not this like, you know, huge institution, but showing up each day, leading this seminary and, and meanwhile, like learned through uh, walking with his sons, and he shares this story in the book, um, in in his interview, and is open with us sharing. But both of his sons uh, uh, ended up having to get um, admitted into a drug inpatient drug treatment facility, mm -hmm. and so he's walking through this pain at home, 
while also trying to lead uh, among his staff and students. And, and he just was really honest about the ways in which his community, as we talked about a little bit earlier, but the way the ways which his community was a buoy to him in that season. And so, you know, we're grateful to, you know, share that his sons are doing well today. And, and there's been like incredible, like richness that's come in the relationships uh, with his sons and his wife through that hard season. Uh, but one of the things that has stuck out to me since interviewing him is, you know, we we published the book and featured this story before the Ukraine invasion. But since that has happened, America and his church and his church community and his seminary have just been a beacon of light uh, in, in their community and opening up their sanctuaries for refugees from Ukraine, uh, feeding and caring for so many who are displaced right now. And so you're seeing, you know, Merrick's incredible, faithful ministry over multiple decades, now really bearing incredible fruit in this difficult time in Eastern Europe. So uh, Merrick's someone who I, I really enjoy getting to know and am grateful for as a friend, uh, even now as, as they step up and and serve those who are hurting. Hmm. You know, one of the things that I really liked was the fact that you all didn't just interview kind of the usual suspects, right? That oftentimes whenever I pick up a new book on leadership, it's familiar names, you know, the people who are leading the biggest organizations, you know, that sort of thing. But you all actually were intentional in interviewing many individuals who are Christian servants leading in under-resourced countries, different places all over the globe. Um, what went into that decision, and why is it so important for the church in North America to be listening to more diverse Christian voices? Yeah, you know, so this was actually a similar process. Uh, when Chris and I wrote uh, Mission Drift and Rooting for Rivals, we really wanted to reach out to uh, a wide network. We wanted to look across sectors, across geographies, and ask a similar question of who are the exemplars. So with Mission Drift, it was who are those individuals, what are those uh, organizations that have had, um, and then we had the criteria. And same with Rooting for Rivals, who are those organizations that have just an open-handed posture and generous posture to other organizations? And in this one, the question that we asked is, and who are those individuals that have had that long-term obedience in the same direction, despite incredible challenges that they faced? And uh, initially, um, you know, we got a lot of names and we had a lot of other interviews of individuals that we didn't, uh, weren't able to include in the book. But there were some names that just came up again and again, or some stories that really uh, captivate us and uh, some themes that we saw repeated. But I think that this really has been a moment for all of us. Um, in many ways, we look at the places that we serve, and if we're not careful, um, and you two know this so well, but if you're not careful, you can think that um, wealth and education means that we have more to give than we do to receive. And we know that that is not true. We know that everyone has something to give and everyone has something to receive. And we just loved the opportunity to find these incredible servant leaders um, and to start uh, asking them for their story. And um, so it was intentional. It was intentional to find stories of individuals that had decades of service despite hardship and yet had this unmistakable hopefulness in the way that they lead their organizations or serve. So again, the people that we feature across continents, uh, at least 10 countries, and um, yeah, just uh, truly, truly, truly 
a wonderful process to, to ask some similar questions, to hear some similar responses, despite some very different uh, appearances of where they are, geography, background, gender, and yet hear what really has sustained their, their hope in the midst of service. I remember Leslie Jules, who was our Haiti country director, sharing with us after you know the, the start of the pandemic in early 2020, he said, listen, this is not the first crisis that Haiti has experienced, and it will not be the last. And that was before the assassination of their president and you know another earthquake that hit last year. And there was something refreshing about talking to our family, our brothers and sisters in these communities who are just more accustomed to that being normal. And Peter referenced that earlier, but I, I do think there was something about it that was deeply therapeutic for, for Peter and I as we were working on this book. To ground ourselves in, you know, what what we maybe falsely put our confidence in. Uh, so it was really powerful to hear their stories, and, and honestly, it was convicting to recognize the places that that we needed to to recalibrate our own expectations. I love the yeah how you just described that, Chris. And Peter, you're laying out that criteria that you set, and I you know I realized it in the book as well as this conversation. I think intuitively, I've kind of tried in a you know less insightful way than you did, but in my own life, just just try to have these conversations to make it through different stages of my being disillusioned and not feeling hopeful. And I, I love that you all had those conversations, put it in a book for us and, uh, and then, you know, teased out what these, what these themes are. It's so helpful. I want to ask one last question to both of you, and then we'll transition into our, our final five quick questions. Um, Jamie and I both really appreciate you all, both of you as leaders and Hope International, we have one of our students uh, graduated is working with you. We have another interning with you now. And so I wanted to ask you a vocation question. Um, I think a lot of people we work with and uh, who listen to this are sometimes in vocational transition. So vocation question maybe, and feel free to adjust this, but Peter, you first, what would you say to the, the interviewee, the person searching for a job is key to look for? when they're thinking, oh, I want to work in this humanitarian development justice space, what are the keys they should be looking for to find the right organization that's a fit for them? Um, and then, Chris, if you could add after that, you know, what do you think for Hope International, what are you looking for in candidates? And you could broaden it out to other organizations as well, but we'd love to hear from both of you. You know, What's the right fit? How does the interviewee who's um, kind of going out there looking for a job, finding the right fit. And then Chris, what are you as an organization uh, looking for as keys as you hire people? Yeah, thanks, Ken. I guess the first thing that comes into mind is the, um, the fact that whenever we're looking at organizations um, and employment, typically we're looking at the organization and does the mission matter? And, um, and, and as we should, we're paying attention to that. But I think if we're not careful, that can miss out on the second question is, and who am I going to be reporting to? Who am I going to be working with? And I guess I would place a, over time, a higher premium on that. Who are the people that I'm going to be working alongside? Who are the people that I'm going to be reporting to and do when I look at their life? Um, do I want to, do I want to learn and grow from them? So it's not just about the mission. Um, it's also about the people. Um, and so I would very intentionally do the interview process back. If you're getting interviewed, make sure you are interviewing the organization and learning more about the people that you'd be working alongside. Yeah, at Hope, we, we like to say we take our work really seriously, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. 
And so when we're interviewing candidates, I think one of the things that we look for, I mean, this is serious work and, you know, we're at our best moments, you know, as an organization, we are fighting injustice and we are expanding, you know, the good news, sharing the good news of Christ uh, in word and deed all over the world. Uh, but we are, we are looking for candidates who are willing to be self-deprecating, uh, who are willing to come into an interview and admit their own vulnerabilities and weaknesses. We, we can see in resumes and LinkedIn profiles and in reference checks, all the professional accolades and all of the credentialing that uh, we can find that information out. What we, what we can't find out in an interview, if we're not looking for it is, is this person someone that's humble? So humility is a huge virtue for us at Hope. Uh, and we really look for that in interviews. I and mean, we'd much rather that um, than come into an interview and feel like we're getting a very polished, glossy highlight reel of someone's professional accomplishments. So humility, it's a tough thing to necessarily mine for in an interview, but we know it when we don't see it. And when it's not there, it's a pretty quick, uh, it's a pretty quick note from our hiring committees. What Chris is saying, everybody, change your resume. So it says, that's the first point, I'm the most humble. Right, exactly. You can, you know, yeah, yeah, just open up with that and <laughs> guaranteed job offer. <laughs> no, it's great advice. Yeah, Jamie, we'll love to hear your thoughts. Oh, mine was going to totally derail us. I just wanted to know at what point in writing the book did you guys start to experience disillusionment from writing? <laughs> so the whole time I've been oh, thinking like this, like this whole meta conversation going of like, you know, you're excited when you get the book contract and then the reality right. hits in, you know, there's the honeymoon phase, we're going to do this. And then it's like, wait, we're still looking at a blank page, you know, so curious, when did that disillusionment hit you all? Well, I'm not sure it ever hit Peter. So I'll jump in on this question. <laughs> I mean, he is just, uh, I mean, yeah, Peter is an incredibly optimistic person and tenacious on the book writing process. But uh, if, if you would listen to a few of our Voxer conversations, probably in early 2021, uh, late 2020, I mean, I was just at the point where I wasn't sure I was cut out for this project. And part of it was my own season of life I was in. Uh, but Peter was a very gracious and generous collaborator. And along with Jill Heisey and Brianna Lapp, who were incredible I just want to name how much we value their their work and their research and their support along the process. But along with the two of them, uh, Peter, they just were they, they they kept me going. So we made it through some of those fallow uh, seasons. <laughs> yeah, I think the moment for me was uh, reading a draft of a chapter that Chris wrote, and um, in the chapter he talks about a particular moment when he was like really disillusioned um, with his colleague at Hope International, uh, uh, who turned out to be me in the story. And so I'm reading the draft. And I'm like, Chris, I mean, I didn't think it was that bad, uh, but that was my moment. All right. So that's like the Easter egg then for all the listeners is as you're going through the book to try to pick, picture which one of those was Peter that wasn't named me. So, so. All right. So let's go ahead and transition to the, the final five here. So first, quite each of these, just a quick answer. I'd love to hear from you, uh, from both. Maybe we'll do Peter first and Chris, just to keep it uh, simple. Uh, Peter, what's something you're currently reading that you're enjoying and finding helpful? Oh, I just really um, enjoyed uh, Keep Sharp by Sanjay Gupta. And a uh, fascinating, fascinating book about uh, health, uh, brain health, um, and uh, all of the new research about what is going to help us um, take care of this body that God has given us to serve well. Is coffee in that list, by the way? <laughs> I just um, thought I should ask that. 
<laughs> coffee is addressed in the book, but another Easter egg. You're going to have to read the book to, uh, to, to find it. <laughs> uh, for me, this will be probably the least uh, spiritual answer of the, the conversation today, but I'm reading the Keeper of the Lost Cities series with my wife and our oldest son, Desmond. So this is the first time he brought a book to us and said, can we read this together? So I these are absolute tomes to get through. I mean, they're huge books. And apparently the youth say it's the next Harry Potter. I'm not quite sure I'm there, uh, but they've been fun. So just a little fiction series that we're reading together as a family, which has been great. <laughs> nice. And Peter, what's a book you've given away more over the years? Uh, In the Name of Jesus by Henry Nouwen. Mm-hmm. Strong and Weak, uh, Andy Crouch. Nice, both great ones. Uh, what's something that helps to keep you productive or helps your productivity? You're both very productive people. This could be an app, a uh, rest, a productivity method, a travel product. What's something that helps you to produce and serve in the way that you do? Yeah, Kent, the thing that um, I noticed is when I would be on planes, it was by far my most productive time. So I would always uh, be on planes and it was like you get off and you feel good and you've been able to think and have clarity. It was like, why is this? What is going on? And I think it really is just the elimination of interruptions. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know. There's been so many books that have been written on that. But I find that um, the one thing online Work offline um, with your with your email and your phone. Put it on the do not disturb. That has been so helpful in increasing productivity. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, uh, again, this a hundred different people have written about this, and it's it's a hack that I'm at my best when I'm practicing regularly. But it's not every day. Uh, but to allow myself to wake up uh, before I wake up my phone and computer. So you know, I I wake up and I. Again, this is I, I don't want to create the, the illusion that this is every day, maybe 60% of days. Uh, but then, you know, start with some time of quiet, uh, time where I get to spend some time in the Word and reading a good book that I'm in the middle of. And after that, and after I've uh, had a cup of coffee, then, you know, we'll jump into, if there's any moments before I'm mobbed by our kids, uh, we'll open the computer and take a look at email and things like that. So yeah, just starting my day with quiet and without my phone and computer has been really, really, really formative. So important to remember. So what's maybe one thing that you've been listening to or watching recently that you've really enjoyed? I have really enjoyed Alone, History Channel, where they drop individuals oh, yeah. off in the middle of <laughs> yes. nowhere and watch them. That is them. crazy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I watched out with my son. I lo- we loved it. It was really fun to watch. And, and I would survive almost today, two and a, like two and a half, or maybe one and a half is about how far I make it. <laughs> uh, I am a glutton for punishment. So uh, one of my hobbies is uh, following, following the Philadelphia Phillies. So I'm a huge baseball fan. And I actually, I, I'm like a 90-year-old man uh, trapped uh, in a 37 <laughs> or 38-year-old body, but I, I subscribe to the radio package and I listen to baseball while I mow and do yard work. So that's that's my sometimes happy, sometimes frustrated place, uh, depending on how the Phillies are playing. But I love listening to baseball on the radio. So call me, yeah, call me grandpa. Well, if you're doing this while mowing, you're not old until you start yelling at the kids to get off the lawn. So until <laughs> that hits you, okay. that's the next level. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then last question: What do you do to renew your body and mind? 
Yeah, so for me, it is uh, the All Trails app and discovering the hidden uh, places to hike with my family around Pennsylvania. And uh, yeah, that has been life-giving to get mm-hmm. out in this incredible world that God has has made and enjoy it. And um, especially with All Trails, you're just constantly discovering places that are not far away, but you never knew. Mm-hmm. Sunday Running Club. So we started this a few years ago in the horse home. So we have four kids, uh, ages three through eleven. And uh, Sunday afternoons, I I run, and then I do a kind of a circuit with each kid, depending on their both their appetite that day as well as their own physical capacity. So my my three year old Mac typically runs to the stop sign and back. It's a good you know fifty <laughs> yard run. And then my oldest son, he's doing like two miles and then I'll run with my, my wife as well. So kind of get a run with each of them. And then I get, you know, a five mile run in and some of the best conversations happen as we're you know running through the neighborhood here in Denver. I love it. That's great. Um, well, Peter and Chris, thanks for this time. I think, you know, in this book, you do such a good job of lifting up people who, um, you know, helped inspire you and inspire us beyond disillusionment to hope. And just want to say that I, I also find that in both of you, uh, really admire your work, admire um, the sustained work that you both have done for excellence and the humility, and you're both fun to laugh with and and be with. So I uh, just want to, as we end the conversation and think about the book, uh, thanks for the way you've done that for for me and for many of us, just really grateful for both of you. Grateful for this time and, and thanks for the good work you're doing and keep, keep it going. Thanks so much. Appreciate the conversation today. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the better Samaritan. We are uh, grateful to be having these conversations alongside you and learning how to keep getting better at doing good. And so appreciate Peter and Chris and, uh, love thinking, you know, in their book and in this conversation about hope that can become disillusioned, um, but then also the opportunity to um, move through that to a, a deeper and more enduring hope. Uh, so hope that you are continuing to experience hope um, as you do do good, as you seek to serve others, uh, as we keep walking this path of learning together. Learn more about the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, including our graduate degree and trauma certificate at the link in our show notes. You can attend the program online or in person and stay in touch. You can email us at producer at bettersamaritan.com. Thanks so much for bringing us along on your journey as we all endeavor to do good better.